Good morning and welcome to House C Production Gospel Blog Talk Radio. Ah, Georgia GOP lawmakers passed sweeping bill to restrict voting rights by Fernando Alfonso III and Veronica Rochaw. CNN News updated 10.04 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, Thursday, March the 25th, 2021. Georgia Governor Kemp signed bill imposing voting restrictions. Let's see what it says here on House Seaport and Gospel Blog Talk Radio. Coming to you from 231 6th Avenue. Down south here in the big city of Beaches, Alabama. You can't do anything without a commercial now, so let's let the commercial run. Today is Friday, it's raining, and, but God is still good. God is still good. He's in control no matter what we are doing or what no we're doing. There were many alarming issues with how the election was handled, and those problems understandably led to the crisis of confidence in the ballot box here in Georgia. While I am no longer Secretary of State, as governor, I was the first to call on Secretary Raffensperger to complete an audit of signatures on the overwhelming number of absentee ballots that were cast during the election. I did that four times publicly. I was the first to call for a change in state law through the legislature that would implement a photo ID requirement on all absentee ballots. And I joined many others, including President Trump, in urging the Secretary of State's office to quickly and fully investigate any and all fraud irregularities. I also offered the assistance of the Georgia Bureau of Investigation to get to the bottom of each and every allegation of fraud. I'm proud of the dedicated men and women who answered the call to duty, but more needed to be done. We quickly began working with the House and Senate on further reforms to make it easy to vote and hard to cheat. The bill I signed into law does just that. First and foremost, SB 202 replaces the signature match process with a state-issued ID requirement to request and submit an absentee ballot. When voting in person in the state of Georgia, you must have a photo ID. It only makes sense for the same standard to apply to absentee ballots as well. I have heard that it is illegal, according to this new law, we're going to find out that it is illegal to bring a person standing in line to vote water and food. I repeat, I have heard that it is illegal with this new voting law signed into off signed into law by uh, the Georgia governor that it is illegal to bring a person standing in line to um, to bring them water and food while they are voting let's listen let's see what we find out here Georgia Democratic representative arrested protesting voting bill 
so we're still trying to learn quite a bit about what happened there. But I did speak with Representative Park Cannon. She's an Atlanta Democrat's attorney, Gerald Griggs. Now, we have not been able to confirm this, but Griggs tells me that she was arrested, that she is being charged uh, with obstruction, and that he's working on getting her out of jail at this very moment. Now, CNN has reached out to state uh, police, and we have not received any sort of response. We've also uh, reached out to the governor's office and not been able to get response. It, uh, at this point, what happened was basically Representative Cannon was trying to get in, uh, knocking on the door with other uh, protesters. There were other representatives there so that people could see the signing of SB202 into law. She'd been a very vocal critic of it and, and what it would do to voting rights, she believed. And at that point, as he's signing, we kind of hear something on that live stream. It appears that is what this was. You can see in the video uh, those officers sort of taking her and carrying her out of the Capitol. And at this point, according to her attorney, Gerald Griggs, she is still down uh, at the jail. Uh, they are still going through paperwork attempting to get her out, he says. America, what is it about America and the black vote? will this law have on voters in your state of Georgia? Well, first of all, it's a very sad day for this state. Uh, it, it, it bodes to moving back to Jim Crow era kind of legislation. Uh, the impact certainly has the potential to reduce uh, voters, particularly of color, uh, who normally would have, a, a, the, all voters would have a longer time to vote I, I think there's something in that legislation that says you can't even bring somebody water. Uh, how inhumane can these legislators be? Starting, uh, even though the governor didn't vote, he, of course, approved it by signing the legislation. Uh, it's, it's, it's not surprising. It's greatly disappointing that our state has gone in this direction. Uh, what it means is that people are going to have to be more vigilant. Black people, young people, uh, older people, poor people are going to have to be even more vigilant. Uh, it's unfortunate that this trend is happening all across America in over 40 states across our nation. It used to be a time where if you called someone a racist, they would want to retreat. But now it seems to be in vogue and all right to be a racist. Uh, it's a sad day in America, quite frankly. And you, you view that bill that he signed as a form of racism. Excuse me? And so you're saying that you view the bill that he signed as a form of racism. Oh, absolutely. There's no other reason. Why would you put something in place? You said we had a great election back in, uh, in January, on January 5th, and of course last year in November. There were no flaws or anything. So why would you restrict? We're supposed to be expanding the right to vote to make it easier for more people to vote, not restricting the right to vote. It's a travesty. It's tragic. And I think voters, maybe this is going to backfire. The hope is that more and more people will vote because they've made it so much more difficult by what they've done, which should be unconstitutional. And when you think about the fact we lead the nation and the world in promoting democracy, but we're blocking democracy at home. It's a sad day in Georgia and a sad day for America. I want to get your thoughts on what we heard from President Biden today. He said he agrees with former President Obama that the filibuster is a relic of the Jim Crow era. You wrote about the filibuster in a new op-ed for CNN.com called, This is what my father would have done. So what would your father have done about this? Well, number one, perhaps there would have been additional mobilization efforts before uh, it got to this particular point. 
Uh, and in fact, I would say if my father had lived, we would probably be dealing with different issues, not the issues that we're dealing with right now. But right now, the only thing that we can do is to mobilize and to organize and to get more and more people registered. And when the voting starts, to vote immediately. Uh, those are the only th provisions that I'm aware of. Now, the final provision may be uh, if the Senate passes, you know, uh, S-1. Uh, which is being talked about, and uh, Senator Schumer and uh, Senator Klobuchar and many others are on board to do that. If that happens, uh, some of this will be addressed. What is it about America and the vote? What is it? When President Biden revoked the construction permit of the Keystone XL pipeline, environmentalists celebrated. 1,500 miles from Washington, in Murdo, South Dakota, population 444, Jeff Berkland had a different reaction. How did you feel? Like I got kicked in the stomach, honestly. I didn't, I didn't feel good at all. He's the CEO of a tiny electric cooperative with a big opportunity, building two substations providing power to two of the pipeline's pumping stations. And each one of those would generate how much financially for you? Roughly half a million dollars a month. This for a company that has only seen 99 new customers in 30 years. The profits would have all gone back to the co-op's 3,700 members. Roughly, our members on average would have received about a $325 credit annually. That would be theirs. Additionally, he says tens of thousands of tax dollars would have trickled down to the local school district and its 190 students. But all that vanished with the stroke of a presidential pen. In Phillips, South Dakota, population 779, Trisha Burns and her husband had just invested their own money expanding Ignite, a fitness center, hoping to make a little extra from the pipeline workers coming to town. So, you know, the old saying, you got to make hay when the sun shines, and we felt like the sun was going to be shining, and we needed to take advantage of that. She watched Biden's inauguration on television. And then the executive order started coming in, and... Um, when he signed the bill to pull the permit, it was a tough, tough moment here at Ignite. By midnight, she says, 45 members had called to cancel memberships. In a big city, that doesn't matter. Here, that's over half of our memberships. Here, that's $3,000 in recurring monthly income. That matters. The town of Philip also saw benefits. TC Energy, the pipeline's owner, contributed money towards a new fire truck, new sidewalks, even local sports. Construction crews spent money at local stores. Biden's opposition to the project wasn't a surprise. How fast everything stopped was. Everything had been signed, sealed, delivered, and that was all taken away in an instant. TC Energy estimates nearly 1,000 employees have been laid off. There's all this money invested into this and all these jobs that people are basically promised. And then the president can just sign an executive order and shut it all down, you know? No one we talk to seems to know what comes next. TC Energy hasn't replied to our request for comment, but has said it was disappointed by President Biden's decision. Environmentalists had argued the pipeline and the oil would have added to climate change and feared damage to water and wildlife where the pipeline went through. But stopping the pipeline has problems of its own, like what happens to the land that was already bought. Another concern, what do you do with all the stuff? Pipeline assets are spread across hundreds of miles. Much of it now just stranded. 
pumping stations, construction camps, and piles of pipe sit vacant and marooned. Many here saw the pipeline as a chance to do better. Now its remnants litter the landscape, haunting reminders of what might have been. Joins us now from South Dakota. Is there any hope among the people you spoke to that this project could be revived, or I mean, what are they, what are they hoping is going to happen? Yeah, it depends who you talk to, Anderson. Some people actually are holding out hope about a federal lawsuit that's now been filed on behalf of 21 Republican-led states. It's alleging that President Biden didn't have the authority to cancel the permit as he did. Court cases take a long time. Other people are actually hoping that President Biden has a change of heart. They would love to be able to plead their case. And then there are those who are hoping for a change of politics, maybe midterm elections, a change of power leadership in both the House and Senate, more favorable to the pipeline. Some even hold out to 2024 and maybe a change of administration. All right, we added that to this broadcast because um, we want to show contrast in what we are talking about here. This is in the pipeline that uh, President Biden stopped with the stroke of a pen. Uh, Lies were on the line. People had invested money. This right here makes a whole lot of folks in this country mad as hell. And they usually do something about it, such as voting, changing legislators, lawsuits, things like that. But I'm wondering what kind of outcry is going to take place so far as this uh, voting law that um, the Georgia Senate has passed, this sweeping bill that would restrict voting access and give state officials more power over local elections. Governor Brian Kemp signed the bill shortly after it passed. The battleground state sites at the forefront of efforts in the GOP-controlled legislature around the country to impose tough new restrictions on voting following losses in the 2020 presidential election. The washing machine of politics turn and turn and turn, and you wonder, is God aware of what's going on? Yes, he is. He is into the affairs of men. The live coverage has ended for the night. Read more about the Georgia new law bill. Uh, Georgia Secretary of State vows to ensure eligibility citizens will be able to vote under new election law. Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger weighed in on the state's newly signed voting bill that would, among other things, impose new voter identification requirement for absentee balloting to be passed to Georgia State earlier today by a 34-20 vote and was later signed by Governor Brian Kemp. In implementing this law, I will ensure that no eligible Georgia voter is hindered in exercising their right to vote. I will continue to further secure our election so that every Georgian can have confidence in the results of our election, Ratzenberger said in a statement. 
Oh. Let's, um, here's what Stacey Abrams said uh, some uh, 15 or 20 hours ago. Stacey Abrams calls Georgia's election bill nothing less than Jim Crow 2.0. Stacey Abrams, founder of Fair Fight Action, called Georgia's sweeping election bill, which would restrict voting access and give state officials more power over local elections, nothing less than Jim Crow 2.0 in his statement. The bill passed the Georgia Senate earlier today by a 34 to 20 vote. Georgia Governor Brian Kemp later signed the bill. The legislation would impose new voting identification requirement for absentee ballots, empowering state officials to take over local election board, limit the use ballot drop boxes, and make it a crime to approach voters in line to give them food and water. You gotta be kidding me. Limits the U.S. ballot drop boxes that makes it a crime to approach voters in line that give them food and water. Georgia Republican, this is her fullest statement. Georgia Republican, shameful effort to support, suppress the vote and seize electrical power through SB202. Write that number down. I am writing it down too. Two, oh, two. SB202. We're going to look that bill up and we're going to share it all over Facebook. SB202 demonstrate how critical the fight for voting rights remain. Every business, political, and civic leader must stand up and make their opposition to these desperate anti-democratic laws clear. At a time when Georgia ranks as the worst state for COVID vaccination rate, Georgia Republicans stand on are singularly focused on reviving Georgia's dark past on racist voting laws. And as the FBI continues to round up seditionists who spill blood to defend a lie about election, Republican state leaders willfully undermine democracy by giving themselves authority to overturn results they do not like. Now more than ever, Americans must demand federal action to protect voting rights as we continue to fight against these blatantly unconstitutional efforts that are nothing less than Jim Crow point two. Georgia Governor signs sweeping election bill. Georgia Governor Brian Kemps has signed a sweeping election bill that passed earlier Thursday by state legislature. In the span of a few hours, Thursday, the GOP-controlled Georgia legislature spared the election bill through two chambers, putting the battleground states on a course in imposing new voting restrictions as citizens in the state that has that was pivotal in securing Democrat control of the White House and the U.S. Senate this year. The bill passed the Georgia Senate by 34 to 20 votes. More details, the legislation would impose new voter identification requirements for absentee ballot and power state officials to take over local election boards, limit the use of ballot drop boxes, make it a crime to approach voters in line to give them food and water. Is it the approach or is it to give them food and water? You can't be campaigning and talking to people about voting while they're standing in line. The campaigning is over. Maybe that's what they're talking about. 
What voting rights groups have said about the Georgia election bill? Voting rights groups have slammed Georgia's far-reaching bill, particularly for its provision aimed at the Secretary of State and election election official. Aimed at the Secretary of State and local election official. They argue that granting the state new power over county election bucks the tradition of local control and, and could lead to a scenario in which state officials swoop in to prevent a county from certifying its election results. It will make it will make what we all lived through in 2020 child's play, said Lauren Grove Wargo, CEO of Fair Right Fair Fight Action, a voting rights group founded by Georgia Democrat State Abram. Its news conference on Tuesday as the bill was approached to head to the full house for the vote. The bill is part of a larger effort by GOP-led legislators across the country to pass restrictive voting measures in key states like Arizona, Michigan, and Florida. As of February, state legislatures in 43 states, 43 states, I say that again, as of February, state legislatures in 43 states have introduced more than 250, 43 states have introduced more than 250 bills with restrictive voting provision, according to a tally from the Brennan Center for Justice at New York University. Some background. The bill comes as Georgia's changing demographics have made the longtime Republican stronghold a key political battleground. Let's stop right here. Um, what is happening in this country is when we talk about demographics, we're talking about brown and black and Mexican, other folks that are voting, becoming a voting citizen, other than white folks. Clear and simple language. White folks are scared as hell of losing the power that they have had in voting and monopolizing anything they go on in this country. In other words, white control of the election process and the election and the process of governing in this country. White folks is losing that. They're losing that because they're not having babies. They're losing that is because they are got their head buried in the sand that they're going to stay in control forever. They are losing that because they need to understand that change is inevitable and that change takes place every single day. You either change with the change or you get ground under. Now, like the 2020 election with uh, President Donald Trump perpetuated a lie all the way up to an insurrection in Washington, D.C., there is more of that coming if we don't wake up in this country. Back to the article. Last November, President Biden became the first Democrat in nearly three decades to win the state. You see what is taking place? And it's going to be happening all over this country. White people in this country are no longer the growing majority of people in this country. The growing majority in the people in this country are black and brown folks. And that's what's scaring the hell out of white folks. The article goes on to say, and strong voter turnout in January helped it send two Democrats to the U.S. Senate, flipping control of the chamber to their party. 
It's about what's taking place in Washington under the Democratic leadership of President Biden and Vice President Harris and the control of the Senate by the Democrats and with a tie-breaking vote by the Vice President under the Democratic ticket. One of these new senators, Raphael Warner, captured his seat in a special election and will be on the ballot again in 2022. You talk about some folks coming out to vote to make sure he don't get back in office. You can bet you some white folks going to be turning them over to make sure folks don't do not vote for Jim Warner. At least 45 states have seen bills aimed at voter suppression. These are the key states to watch. At least 45 states have seen bills aimed at voter suppression. These are the key states to watch. More than 250 bills to curb or complicate access to polls have been introduced in 43 legislatures as of February the 19th, according to Brennan, the Brennan Center for Justice. Make sure you look that up. The Brennan Center for Justice. We're going to be digging into that too. Which is tracking the bills. The bills have been introduced at least two more states, North Carolina and Wisconsin, and Wisconsin, according to CNN reporting. We're going to go back to the Brennan Center for Justice in a minute. Florida, Arizona, and Georgia were all battleground states in 2020 and host the U.S. Senate race in 2022. Republican legislature majorities and GOP governors are moving to make it more difficult to vote in these states. Now, here's the thing for Democrats. You tend to go to sleep after the major national election. But then when you go to sleep, the evil one come and sows deceptions and pull the rug out from under you while you sleep. You know who the evil one is, right? The deceiver, the liar. I am calling out here clearly the deceiver, the liar is Satan. Now, I didn't say it was white folks. I didn't say it was the GOP. The evil one, the deceiver, the liar is Satan, the deceiver. Texas does not have a 2022 Senate race, but it will feature a race for governor in 2022. Republicans currently control all levels of the state government there. That's in Texas. That's another place where folks like, what I want to call their name, you know who I'm talking about. Ted Cruz. Lord have mercy. Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz. Remove him from office, God willing. There are opposers to make it more difficult to vote in other key states, Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, featuring 2022 Senate races, but divided government in those places will make restrictions more difficult to act. There is no Senate race in Michigan, and there is also divided government there. See a breakdown of state government controls here. Most states push to restrict voting rights after 2020 elections. Most states. States lawmakers have introduced 253 bills in 43 states that would make it harder for their residents to vote in upcoming elections as of February the 19th. The state legislatures with the highest number of restrictive bills were Georgia, Pennsylvania, Arizona, which is flipped from 216 to 220 for President Joe Biden in 2020.
Number of bills restricted voting access introduced in the 2020 legislative session. Look at this. Minnesota. Man, oh man. Georgia, 22 bills. Georgia had 22 bills. Let's get a shot of this. Y'all stand by here for a minute. We are preparing for a radio broadcast dealing with voter restrictions. And um, what is it in this law that say you cannot bring a portrait voter that's in a line voting, federal election voting, warning food, we're talking about SB Bill 202, the Georgia bill that was signed into law by George Kemp on uh, Thursday, March the 25th. More coming your way here on House Secret Up Gospel, Blog Talk Radio. Voter restrictions in America. What is it about America and the vote? What is it about America and the vote? I want to repeat that now, what I just said. And you pay attention to what I'm just saying. Most states push to restrict voting rights after 2020 election. This goes back to the big powerful lie and turmoil that led to the insurrection in Washington, D.C., perpetuated by the one and only former President Donald Trump. State lawmakers have introduced 253 bills in 43 states that would make it harder for their residents to vote in upcoming elections. As of February 19, 2021, the state legislature with the highest number of restricted bills was Georgia, Pennsylvania, and Arizona, which all flipped from 216 to vote for President Joe Biden in 2020. Flip from GOP to a Democrat, Georgia has introduced 22 bills to restrict voting rights after the 2020 election. Georgia, Pennsylvania, and Arizona leads the charge. Now, here's why Republicans are pushing voting change now instead of before the 2020 election. Republicans at the state level have moved swiftly to either roll back some easy access to voting or to put obstacles in the way of voters following losses in the 2020 presidential and U.S. Senate elections. They really believe somebody is taking something from them. But what is taking place is the awakening of the American public about government and what it's doing and lying as uh, governors and presidents and political figures. That's what's taking place. Folks of black and brown are waking up to what's taking place in this country and it's voting. I say this in regards to what's taking place. If they don't want nobody to bring you or approach you while you are in the voting line in federal elections or in state elections or wherever you're voting, bring water and food 
with you. Do not let white America, I say white America, the GOP, who is scared to death of losing power, prevents you from voting. Go vote anyway with your lunch bucket and your seat. Bring your water and your food with you. But by God, vote anyway. They are doing this now for four reasons. Back to the article. They are doing it now for four reasons. The pandemic hit. States made last-minute changes in, to ease rules about how and when people could vote because of public health concerns. All right? Turnout surged. Either because of those changes or because voters wanted to reject or protect Trump or both, turnout went through the roof and Trump lost. That's the bottom line. The white knight of the American people lost Donald Trump. And it led to an insurrection in Washington, D.C., trying to prevent the certification of the national election. Number three, Trump alleged voter fraud. Although there was no evidence that any widespread occurred, his repeated allegation turned addressing the integrity of the voting system into the top GOP priority. These white folks and some black folks in the party really believe somebody took something from them. They took nothing from you. They took nothing from you. People just got tired of the bull and the lie and voted President Trump out. And he's sitting back now, laying in the cuts, throwing rocks into the stream of what's taking place in this country to create more upheaval. Number four, Republicans have retained control of state government. Trump allies at the state level have moved quickly to address the voter fraud he alleged but did not occur. Powerful, isn't it? GOP-controlled Georgia legislators passed sweeping election bill. I keep repeating this for your attention. The bill is SB202. Let it be the walking words in your mouth for voting with your lunch bucket and pail bottle of water with you when you go to vote. In the span of a few hours, 30 GOP-controlled judges allegedly spared a sweeping election bill through two chambers, putting the battleground of states on a course to impose new voting restrictions on citizens in the state that was pivotal to securing Democratic control of the White House and the U.S. Senate this year. The bill passed by a 34-20 vote late Thursday afternoon and headed to the desk of Republican Brian Kemp, who announced moments after the vote that he would sign it later Thursday. The legislation, this is powerful. It's like the Christmas tree of goodies. The legislation would impose voter restrictions requirement on absentee balloting, power state officials to take local election board, limits U.S. ballot drop boxes, and crime to approach your voter in the line for, and give them food and water. I repeat it again. I want this drummed into your head. And it is up to you that are listening to me to find out. I'm going to be finding out during this article. Is it true? I'm going to read the bill 
It's like the Christmas tree of goodies for voter suppression, Democrat State Senator Jen Jordan said it at the Senate floor as lawmakers considered the 100-page bill. Republican cast the measure as dubbed the Election Integrity Act of 2021. Write that down. The Election Integrity Act of 2021. The Election election Integrity Act. Integrity Act. 2021. Make sure that sunk into your head is through Integrity Act of 2021. It's needed to boost confidence in the election after the 2020 election that saw former President Donald Trump make repeated unsubstantiated claims of fraud. He went to 30 or 40 courts trying to prove that, and he didn't have nothing. He had nothing. He had nothing. Therefore, nothing was declared wrong. The package is part of a national Republican effort that aims to restrict access to the ballot box following record turnouts in November election. In other words, they want to slow down the number of people that are voting. They don't want so many regular folks voting. They want more white folks to vote. What do you do, white folks? You get up off your ass and go vote. That's what you do. That's how you you increase your numbers. You go vote. Because folks are on to your game now. The package is part of the National Republican effort that aims to restrict access to the ballot box following record turnout in the November election. President Biden said in his first White House press conference Thursday that, that's yesterday, that he will do everything in his power to halt efforts to restrict voting rights saying that he thinks the effort underway in state legislators are un-American. About the bill. The Georgia bill is SB2OT. The Georgia bill is SB202, with limit drop boxes to the inside of every voting voting location during voting hours. Make giving food or drink to a voter a misdemeanor allowing for unlimited challenges to voter registration and eligibility and grant state officials broad rights, including the ability to replace local election officials. It would also shorten the runoff cycle from the current nine weeks to just four weeks and remove the elected secretary of state as chair of the state election board. My goodness. Woo! Let's go back. I want to go back to uh, something that I told you I was going to return to uh, in regards to who is keeping track of uh, all these uh, election law bills that are going into place. I'm scrolling now looking for it. Now, who I'm talking about from the Brennan Brennan Center for Justice. Let's look at the tally. This is how many bills these 43 states have put in place. State voting bills, tracker 2021. 
state voting. We're going to make a copy of this for further uh, information when we get ready to do the broadcast to refer to. State Voting Bill Tracker 2021. State lawmakers continue to induce voting and election bills at a furious pace. This was as of February the 24th, 2021. That's uh, a month ago. Today is the 25th. In conjunction with the Brennan Report on state voting proposals, below is a list of restricted and expensive bills that are tracking to date as of February the 19th, 2021. State lawmakers have carried over pre-filled or uh, introduced 253 bills with provisions that restrict voting access in 43 states and 704 bills with provisions that expand voting access in a different set of 43 states. Note that in some cases, a single bill can have provision with both restrictive and expansive effect. Bills restricting access. Bills restricting access. Okay, we're going to take a picture here, copy an image, for upload during the broadcast of folks standing in line. This is the majority of these folks here are, are white. There are a few blacks branded in there. But anyway, they're all standing in line. Some of these had their chairs out there. Some of them got their portable in their hand as they approach the pole. But one thing is for sure, they're waiting in line to vote. I don't know whether it's a state election, federal election, or what, what is taking place, a local election, whatever. But either way, the deal is now you cannot approach these people and offer them food and drink. I say to you that are in line, that will be in line because they're going, everything going to be shortened and slowed down. So therefore, they're going to make the lines longer and more people waiting in line because they're going, they're restricting access to the poll. They're making less places where you can vote. You know what? The GOP trying to do everything other than get off their asses and vote to win. And that is to restrict you, Jim Q public, black, white, pink, I don't care who you are, whatever nationality, what party you're in, restrict your voting. And that think they think, think that would give them the win. But it's going to backfire. State lawmakers continue to use voting and election bills at a furious pace. Man. The states are here. The bills. Man, this is something else. The, the farther people act would stop voter depression in its tracks. That's an analysis. Senator Warren calls out Jim Crow in new clothes. He stood on the legislative floor and did that in the Senate and did that. For you all that are keeping record, he is the pastor where Martin Luther King pastor. He's at that church. Informed citizens are our democracy's best defense. Stay up to date. I'm going to fill this out. I'm going to fill this out. Freddie Howard, Freddie C. Howard, sign me up. 
we just signed that up to get information from uh, stay up to date informed citizen of, of our democracy best defense okay it's time for you to get active we have made a um, a um, board member for this to be accessed during the broadcast and we go back and look at it these are bills that are Arizona has one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Arizona has seven bills. Absentee voting, absentee voting, absentee voting, absentee voting, voter registration, voter ID, other presidential electors, polling places. Arizona. Alabama, SB 200, HB 239399, HB 396, HB 314, HB 285. This is in Alabama. Disability access, purges, absentee voting, absentee voting ID, purge, purge. That's Alabama. Purge means to go through the voting list and take off voters. That's one of the favorite tricks of others. Bill restricting voting access. One of 13 pages. Man. Bill's expanding voting access. One of 36 pages expanding. The ballot is on for your vote. The ballot is a bill restricting voting access. 13 pages. You need to read this. You need to get aware of what's taking place in this country about the vote. And really set in motion by President Donald Trump and a lie. An absolute lie. It is powerful what's taking place in this country. Let's go to the Brennan Center for Justice. The Brennan Center for Justice. Who are they? What are they? Where did they come from? And what does it have to do with you voting? Issues. The Brennan Center works to reform and defend our country's system of democracy and justice. Ensure every American can vote reform money in politics, protect liberty and security, defend our election, strengthen our courts, bolster checks and balances, gerrymandering and fair representation, in mass incarceration, advance constitutional changes. You can see all these issues. Our work. Our work. The Brennan Center, our work. Let's look at our works. Analysis and opinion, court cases, the transition 2021, research and report, responding to the coronavirus crisis, policy solutions, and this is also in, 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 in Spanish as well. As an independent, nonpartisan law and a policy organization, the Brennan Center conducts rigorous research to identify problems and provide in depth 
empirical finding, empirical finding, compelling analysis, and pressing legal issues. We also pioneer and champion policy solutions such as automatic voter registration and small donor. We are going to make a copy of this for our board as well to refer to during the broadcast. Man. Uh, analysis and opinions, policy solutions, responding to current crisis. All of these things are here for your learning. Get up, up, get up, get up, get up, get up. Get up, get up, and find out. The work experts, some of the experts that they bring in to deal with the issues. Some of the experts. Search for a Brennan Center expert or browse by area of expertise. View all of our staff. Who is on the staff of the Brennan Institute? Staff expert leadership, Michael Walden. Staff expert leadership, John F. Kowal. Staff expert leadership, Wendy R. Weiser. Staff expert fellow leadership, Jennifer Wise Watt. Staff Expert Leadership, Lauren Brooke Eisen. Staff Expert Leadership, Elizabeth Goldteen. Staff Expert Fellow Leadership, Theodore R. Johnson. Lawrence Nolan. Fats Patel, Fanzat Patel, Myra Perez. There's more. Let's see who else. There are a number of people that support this organization and work with this organization to make sure issues are dealt with. Transparency and oversight ethics of the rule of law, executive power, effective Congress, Andrew Ward, Madilo Denon, Council of Democracy, Fair Accurate Census, Gary Manning, and Fair Representation, Angela Diaz. Social media, privacy, free expression, First Amendment, protection, liberty, and security advance. These are just some of the people. Kristen Durham, Senior Legislative Council, Washington, D.C. These are just some of the people that are part of the Brennan expert. Now, how can you get involved? The Brennan Center works with Bill American that is Democrat, just and free. Here's how you can help support our work, partner with us, get informed, podcast, attend an event. See all, get involved. I am at this point going to get involved. I am going to get involved. In fact, I am getting involved with this radio. Support our work. We fight to make the elections fair and mass incarceration and preserve our liberties in Congress and state, the court and the court public opinion. Join us in building an American that is democratic, just and free. Get informed. Unnecessary barriers are hindering American citizens from fully participating in our democracy and being fairly represented by government informed citizens and our best defense. Take a deep dive into key issues impacting our democracy. Attend an event. Partner with us. The assistant advisor of pro bono partners is virtually enabling us to leverage our intended resources and greatly increase the number of projects we undertake. Podcast Brennan Center. 
Brennan Center Live is a podcast created for Brennan Center events, featuring and, and fascinating conversations with well-known thinkers of issues like democracy, justice, and race and constitution. Podcasts, the Brennan Center. Podcast, the Brennan Center Live. Let's, as we are dealing with this here, let's listen to a portion of uh, the podcast. You can also donate the Brennan Center Live podcast created by Brennan Center Events featuring fascinating conversations with well-known thinkers on issues like democracy, justice, race, and the Constitution. We want to listen now. Uh, And here we go. Brennan Center for Justice. Anna Appleblum on the twilight of democracy. Let's listen. Welcome to this Brennan Center for Justice event. For those of you who don't know, the Brennan Center is a nonpartisan law and policy institute affiliated with New York University's School of Law. I'm Larry Norton, director of the election reform program at the Brennan Center. I'm thrilled to introduce our distinguished guests this afternoon. In America and around the globe, democratic institutions have begun to deteriorate. Unfortunately, what's gaining traction are authoritarian movements. Anne Applebaum, journalist and Pulitzer Prize-winning historian, argues in her new book, Twilight of Democracy, that this trend should come as no surprise, given what she calls the seductive lore of authoritarianism. This conversation will be moderated by Max Booth, he is a CNN Global Affairs Analyst, Washington Post columnist, and Senior Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. Welcome, Max. Thank you very much, Larry. It's uh, going to be a terrific conversation at a very unusual time in uh, U.S. history and the history of the world. Now it's my pleasure to welcome Anne Applebaum. In the Washington Post review of Anne's book, Sherry Berman writes, Twilight of Democracy offers many lessons on the long-standing struggle between democracy and dictatorship. But perhaps the most important is how fragile democracy is. Its survival depends on choices made every day by elites and ordinary people. And we're here to talk about Anne's book, Twilight of Democracy, which I highly commend to you, uh, not only in the way that, that Sherry Berman did, but let me just say that just as a reader, I found it to be a very fast very informal read. I got through it in an afternoon, but it's packed with wisdom and insights, which is exactly what I would expect from Anne, because there is really no writer writing today who I respect more than Anne. So it's a pleasure uh, to be with you again, Anne, and, and to discuss your important book. Thank you so much, Max. That's that's very kind words. And thanks so much to NYU and to the Brennan Center for organizing. Great. Well, let me uh, start off uh, by talking about the way you start off the book, which is by writing about a party that you had uh, to mark the new millennium on December 31st, 1999. And I believe it was in the very house where you are currently sitting. Uh, a very a much more impressive backdrop, I might add, than the uh, hotel kitchen that I have behind me at the moment. Uh, but, you know, you wrote about this uh, in the book as well as in an Atlantic article previously. And it's uh, really something that I think caught people's attention because you wrote about how uh, you partied on uh, at the end of the 1990s 
with all of your uh, fellow conservatives, people who believed in classical liberalism, in essence, and who felt like their vision had been vindicated uh, by the fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of the Soviet Empire. And there was kind of this giddy sense of triumph, of, of new possibilities, of uh, even of history ending, as, as Frank Fukuyama wrote. And you look back on that from the vantage point of uh, 20 years on, and it seems like a much more dismal picture. And, and what you point out in the book is that uh, so many of the people who are uh, fellow well-wishers of this party are essentially no longer talking to one another uh, because uh, they have gone in such different directions, with many of them turning out to be illiberal nationalists, conspiracy mongers, anti-Semites, uh, et cetera, et cetera, and others like you uh, sticking to what you view as being a fairly consistent belief in in, uh, in conservatism, meaning, I guess, essentially classical liberalism. So, you know, I would start off by asking you, what do you think changed? I mean, did these people change, or were they simply not who you who you thought they were in 1999? Were they always like this, or or have they just gone? Have have they just changed because of changing circumstances over the last couple of decades? So it's a, I mean, the book is the answer to that question. I mean, it begins with the party. And let me hasten to explain that I'm not a great hostess and I don't give lots of parties or anything like that. It just seems like um, the party is really a metaphor for a group of people, for um, a kind of group of, not even so much friends, but a group of political associates, people who thought alike and kind of hung around together. Um, and now no longer do. Um, and the book is an answer to that question, and I answer it by looking at the same problem in several different places, um, not just Poland, but also the U.S., the U.K., um, Spain, with some references to other, other countries. Um, and there isn't a single answer. Um, it's not a political science book with a sort of big thesis that can be defended. It's, a, um, it's partly, it's a, you know, it's very... Um, uh, it's from my point of view. It's not an, it's a subjective view of what happened. Uh, and I give different answers for different people. Um, and mostly, most of, the, most of the explanation, sooner or later, comes down to disappointment. Um, either people being disappointed with their societies, disappointed with how something turned out, um, disappointment at a, at a very general level that they they feel their countries are are degenerate or they are going downhill or they are not as good as they used to be or they are weaker or 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 um, you know you know less authentic than they used to be or in some cases it's disappointment with their own personal circumstances. Um, in Poland, there are a number of people who I write about who, for example expected that the transformation, the transition from communism to democracy in the 1990s would be personally good for them. Um, and actually, in most cases, it has been good for them. I mean, they, you can't, these aren't, this is not a book about people who are starving or who are somehow victims of the transition or anything like that. But they weren't quite as successful as they thought they should be. They didn't become prime minister or, I don't know, best-selling authors. Um, and many of them became very resentful of the system that was created and of the people who, who were running it um, and of the values that it espoused. So the, so the book is about how people then dealt with that disappointment. And, and the argument is that when you're really disappointed, when you really think your society is dead or declined or undermined or 
changing in ways that you don't like, then that's one of the paths that sometimes leads to, to political radicalism. Um, extreme views often are, you know, are, 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 I mean, you find them in people who, who are really quite angry and they feel that nothing left can be done, that democracy has failed or the political system has failed or the elites have failed or the, um, the society has failed and it needs a radical, dramatic, even violent or, or um, disruptive change. And that's the mood that leads people into radicalism. Um, and I kind of, I trace that path in different ways and how different people have followed it um, over the last 20 years. But is it possible that some of those people were kind of radicals or liberal uh, to begin with, and those uh, differences between them and you were papered over by the Cold War, by the mutual fight against communism? And I'm thinking of people like Solzhenitsyn, who of course was a great hero of the Cold War struggle, uh, great, not only a great Russian writer, but great Russian dissident, but not a liberal Democrat, somebody who didn't actually believe in the system that uh, that you and I hold dear. Do you think that was true of, of more of those people at the time than you realized? Yeah, I think, I mean, that's certainly true, but I mean, I think that's true in the United States as well. I mean, all of these anti-communist coalitions everywhere were just that. They were coalitions. And, you know, why were people anti-communists? I mean, it, you know, look, even if you take the United States, well, so some people were cold warriors because of rail politique, and they were worried about nuclear weapons, and they worried about Soviet influence in Europe and around the world. Um, and that included, by the way, a lot of Democrats. Um, some people were cold warriors because they believed in human rights and democracy, and they believed that human rights, that de democracy was the opposite of communism, and therefore um, communism had to be fought. Um, some people were anti-communists or cold warriors because they were Christians and because communism was atheist, and they thought that by, you know, by, by engineering the fall of communism, they would they would spread Christianity, and they expected that to be one of the outcomes um, of the fall of the Berlin Wall. And one of the things that happened, I mean, and I think actually it happened quite fast in the 1990s, if you look across um, different countries, rather Poland, the U.S., the U.K., um, is that those coalitions quite quickly began to break up. Um, and there was a lot of initially disappointment with, you know, in the 1990s in the, in the U.S. and the U.K., you had the George Bush senior administration, you had the... Um, you had the John Major administration, and these were these were run by people who were pragmatic and believed in. Okay, now the the, the drama is over, and now it's time to rebuild Europe and put the, put the pieces back together again. And that was a process that, for a lot of people, was quite boring. I mean, people missed their the, the radical days when they were on the cutting edge of politics, and you know they were in disagreement with everybody else, and then they proved to be right, and they sought they sought bigger challenges. Um, and that was one of the things that happened in the U.S. And then actually, as you say, in, in Eastern Europe, yes, there were a lot of people who were who were anti-communist, but that didn't mean they were Democrats. It meant that they were nationalists or they were, um, you know, or they also had a they had a, a, a religious vision of society and they believed that society should be organized as in Poland around the Catholic Church or in Russia as around the Orthodox Church. And so, so yes, very quickly people found that they had they had great differences. I mean, one of the effects of that in Eastern Europe initially was that in a number of countries, former communists came back to power, and that was very often because the anti-communist opposition turned out to be so fragmented and to have such so so little unity. Um, so yes, I, I think you're right. I mean, I think I think these big coalitions broke up, but I think that's something that also 
that just happens um, every generation or so. What about your own views? I mean, I think you're very eloquent in tracing the changes in many of your friends or maybe, as, as Norman Horitz would say, ex-friends. Uh, but what about your own views? I mean, are you the same person uh, politically and ideologically as you were in 1999, or have you shifted as well? And as a former Republican, I think we're both former Republicans, although you, you, you earlier than me, I like to repeat Ronald Reagan's line about, I didn't leave my party, my party left me. But I'm not sure that's 100 percent accurate, because I feel like my views have shifted in, in some matters as well. And I'm just wondering, uh, what about you? My principles are still the same, and the, the reasons why I was an anti-communist remain the same as now, and I was one of the people who was interested in democratization and, and, and human rights, and that was what I thought was at stake um, in the 1980s and, and early 1990s. But I also think that you know, any intelligent person, um, and I think on the left and the right this is true, changes their views as circumstances change. Um, there's the, that famous quote from Kennan, which is, you know, what, you know, how, you know, when the facts change, I change my views, you know, what do you do? Um, and I do feel like life throws up different circumstances and, and new problems and not all of your old frame of mind fits the new problem. Um, and not all of the ways that you thought in the 1980s or 1990s are appropriate you know, to 2020, um, and so yeah, I probably have changed what I what I what I what I think about some things. I mean, on some basic levels, you know, you have to adjust your views. And I would say that I'm still fundamentally committed to um, a society in which there is an even playing field in politics, in which um, you know, in which there is there are independent courts, um, in which there are separations of power um, of powers, in which um, you know, there are some forms of independent media that um, that that are not either dependent on the state or dependent on uh, you know on on oligarchs with close connections to the state. So there are sort of there are certain fundamental rules that I would say I haven't I haven't changed on. But how the issues present themselves and and the importance that they have, I think that has changed in my head over time, and I think it should. Have you changed your views on whether? democracy is destined to triumph. Obviously, your book is called The Twilight of Democracy. Uh, so I'm just curious, and I don't want to put words into your mouth, but have you gone from being, you know, uh, super optimistic about democracy to being super pessimistic? Is that accurate? Well, I certainly, so, so I, I mean, that is what my book is about. It's about the loss of certainty and the loss of, um, you know, our, that, exactly that sense that, you know, there's something inevitable about democracy. But I actually think that that feeling of inevitability, um, you know, that, that it has to be that way, you know, that history is progressive and it unfolds in a certain manner. And of course, that's what, um, which, you know, that's, of course, a caricature of what most people thought. It was clear, you know, even in the 90s, it was clear that it wasn't going to be smooth sailing. I mean, I, it was clear to me that Russia wasn't going to be a democracy quite early on, for example. Um, and in fact, my party opens on, um, you know, December 31st, 1999, which is all that Boris Yeltsin resigned and Putin began what would be his um, beginning two decades long in power. So even at that moment, it was becoming clear. So, I, I, you know, I, I, I don't want to oversimplify what people thought, but certainly the, this, this feeling of inevitability was a mistake 
And it was a mistake not only because it was, um, you know, it, was, it, it, it made us predict the future incorrectly, but also because I think it gave people a sense of complacency um, about, particularly about our own democracy, about American democracy, about West European democracy, and not just about the new democracies of Eastern Europe, um, newish. They're not so new anymore. Um, and that feeling of complacency, I think, meant that for a lot of people, you know, they kind of checked out of politics starting in the 1990s. Well, politics is something that professionals do. We don't have to worry about it. You know, it'll somehow manage itself. We don't need to vote. We don't need to be members of parties. We don't need to be part of civic institutions. We don't have to worry about get out the vote campaigns. There's someone who will do that. You know, there's a there's some kind of professional caste or class who will do it. And I think that was um, that was a major mistake um, because that that really um, that was one of the reasons why people's faith in democracy began to weaken. And it was one of the reasons why democracy in the U.S. in particular um, was taken over and began to be harmed by these, you know, just torrents of, of spending and, and, um, and, and, um, and, and by lobbyists and special interests who sought to twist it in various ways and that which, which then undermined people's faith in it further. So, in fact, one of the things I hope to achieve with the book is a um, is is it's a kind of clarion call, you know, a reminder to people: don't be complacent. Um, democracies do fail, and in fact, all democracies in the past have failed. And you know, even most of the ones that exist now um, are very recent. Um, you know, ours is ours is a couple of hundred years old. It's one of the oldest. Um, um, by some, it depends how you want to compare us to Great Britain, but um, by some matter, by some measures, it is the oldest. Um, and most of the ones around are far more recent. And, you know, we've seen democracy collapse multiple times. We've seen it collapse many times in South America over the last several decades. We saw it collapse in Europe um, in the 1930s. Um, many, democr- many European democracies that we think of as fairly stable today are quite recent. You know, not forget Eastern Europe, and it's Spain and Greece democracies in the 1970s, which is not so long ago. Um, and keeping that in mind and remembering that, you know, politics is really cyclical rather than progressive, um, that it doesn't go in one direction, it can go in many directions, and that there's no, there's no law that says once you've had a democracy for X numbers of years, you'll always have one. Um, I think that's a good reminder, especially for Americans who have the sense of, you know, this, you know, that our democracy is somehow inevitable or guaranteed. Let me press you a little bit more on uh, the title of your book and the thesis of your book. And you've said repeatedly that it's not a strongly thesis-driven book. But let me just ask you about the title, because I notice it is called Twilight of Democracy, and it doesn't have a question mark. And at some points in the book, uh, you seem fairly pessimistic about the outlook for democracy, where you write... For example, on page 14, given the right conditions, any society can turn against democracy. Indeed, if history is anything to go by, all of our societies eventually will. And yet, uh, by the end of the book, by page 185, while you say that uh, we may be doomed like glittering multi-ethnic Habsburg Vienna or creative decadent Weimar Berlin to be swept away into irrelevance, it is possible that we are already living through the twilight of democracy, that our civilization may be heading for anarchy or tyranny, and so forth and so on. Uh, but then you write, uh, or maybe the coronavirus will inspire a new sense of global solidarity, 
maybe we will renew and modernize our institutions. Do you have a, at this point in time, and I, I realize the story remains very much unfinished, but I mean, are, which way are you leaning? Is this actually the twilight of democracy or not? First of all, I don't do predictions. Um, second of all, one of the things I came to, one of the conclusions I came to while writing the book, actually, um, is that it is irresponsible for people in my generation to be pessimistic um, and to say it's the end, you know, it's all over. Um, because that is unfair. People who are 20 and 30 years younger than us, who are just beginning their lives and their careers, um, and who have a chance to change things and make them better. I mean, the book is really a warning rather than a prediction. Um, it is, um, you know, it points out that democracies do die. Um, it shows and indicates how some of them could die. Um, uh, it, it, it points out that, you know, some die and then are revived. And, you know, history has been circular in many places. And, and there are countries that have, like Greece that have gone back and forth between democracy and dictatorship over, over many decades. Um, but ultimately, it leaves, it points out that the, you know, there is no, there is no, um, you know, there is, there is no way to predict the future. And decisions that are made now, both by people in power and by people who are younger, um, can affect the outcome. Um, we, we, it, you know, it's the twi- you know, we can, we can revive democracy. We can bring it back. We can change the way its rules works. Um, we can, you know, we have the power to, for example, to eliminate the flows of money that go in, in our democracy. We have the power to eliminate flows of dirty money around the world. We could end tax shelters tomorrow by making them illegal. You know, we, we have the power to change things. And the, I hope that the book inspires younger people to see that. Is social media a danger or a boost for democracy or both? And which way do you think it's going to shake out? So social media, like any media, is neutral in that you know it's it's it can be used by different people in different ways. It's sort of neither good nor bad. I mean, it's like asking whether you know TV is good or bad. I mean, TV you know you can do fantastic things on television and you know amazing creative documentaries, you know, or you can put out. Um, you know, reality television garbage 24 hours a day. Um, and social media is a little bit like that in that it's a reflection of how people speak and talk to one another. Um, and both the, the best of humanity and the worst of humanity can be found on social media. Um, and social media has clearly been used to organize people in an empowering way, and it's been used to divide people in a disempowering way. Um, and uh, you know, much depends on on the on which channels are being used and who's who's using them. Um, in my book, I do talk about the ways in which um, which the authoritarians have sought to use social media, which is interestingly almost the opposite of the way the guy I the the, the, the Belarusian I wrote about last week. Um, is using them. Namely, they have sought to use social media as a as a tool of division um, in order to you know create you know create wedge issues to 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 to, to uh, and and also to create um, create a sense of fear and to create senses of um, us us versus them community online. You know we you know we need to hang together to protect ourselves against the you know the the, the rest of the evil society. 
Um, and so, I, you know, again, it's a tool that can be used either way. I mean, there's a there are a number of ways in which some forms of social media, and particularly Facebook, um, but also actually even 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 YouTube um, and and Twitter. Uh, have been, um, you know, you know, certainly have been used to increase extremism. Um, the way their algorithms work is that they, 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 that you know, they favor, they try and get people staying online as long as possible. Um, they tend to show people or guide people in ever more extreme directions. And so there is a national conversation, I think, that needs to be held about whether we want social media to do that and should. Um, should there be some insight into these algorithms and transparency about how they work? Um, and is, is it, you know, given that that's increasingly the way in which people get their information, don't we want there to be some, um, some, some, you know, some, some input from the entire society about what the, what the rules are? Um, so, you know, so I think social media can be very destructive or it can be very constructive. You know, it depends how it's used. It depends what the rules are. I mean, certainly I think we can say that it's very, um, it's, it's undermining of whatever current system is in place. You know, any media revolution, you know, whether it was the invention of the printing press um, at the beginning of the, of the Reformation or whether it was the invention of radio um, in the early 20th century, anytime there's a new system of information or people getting information in different ways, there's always a political revolution that and I think that that's really what we're in the middle of now. Has there been more coordination in recent years between democracy movements? And let me also ask you, at my, the flip side of the question is, is there also more coordination between dictatorships? Are dictatorships also uh, working together to stymie freedom fighters? I think both are absolutely true. Um, in the way, you know, of course, and remembering, of course, that they've always been true. Um, so what happened in 1989, which was a pre, you know, pre-internet, pre-social media era, was that people, you know, in one Eastern European country saw the revolution happening next door and imitated it or imitated aspects of it. Um, you, know, you know, and actually you can look back at 1848 and, you know, or other, other revolutionary moments in history or other indeed authoritarian moments in history. And you can often see countries copying one another or importing ideas. So ideas have always moved very fast from country to country. Um, but you asked specifically about whether dissidents are helping one another. The answer to that is yes. Um, there is in some cases it's voluntarily. There are some groups that have that go out of their way to make that happen. To make that to, you know there are people who have who have dedicated themselves to explicitly trying to learn the lessons of what makes a successful nonviolent movement, for example, um, or a successful street demonstration, and they have tried to spread that knowledge from one place to the next. Um, and by the same token, I mean, and this this again is in my book. Um, there is no question that um, both authoritarians learn from one another, learn technologies from one another. In some cases, it's explicit. You know, China explicitly, for example, exports its form of social, you know, social credit. So its form of social control, which uses social media and uses the internet and uses spy cameras and all kinds of things, it is explicitly exporting that to other countries and teaching them how to do it. So that that is absolutely happening. Um, but it's also, there's a, there are other, the, the, the sort of illiberal international is also functions in a different way, which is that there are, um, there are online activists who copy one another's style and techniques and sometimes even literally 
repost their memes and their and their jokes, um, which works also across borders. So there is something like an international all right, which takes some cues from the U.S. and some cues from Europe, um, and sometimes organizes itself even spontaneously around around these ideas. What's inspired the reaction against liberalism in the United States and Europe? Are elites leading this, or are they following popular cues? Um, that's, I mean, that's a chicken and egg question. You know, it, it's a bit of both. Um, I think there is a um, there is a lot of disillusion in the United States. Um, you know, you can you know you can you can go back to the uh, the financial crisis, which is a moment when a lot of people lost faith in. You know, the, the idea that many had had that people in power, at least, you know, they may not know a lot, but at least they know how to run financial markets in the United States. And this was quite powerful, actually, outside of the U.S., around the world. You know, faith in American leadership really was damaged um, at that moment. Um, you can also look to the, um, uh, you, know, the, the, you know, the feeling that many had that they were left out of the arguments in the 1990s and that the... Um, you know, economic changes and demographic changes didn't include them or they weren't consulted. And so some of that disillusion and sense that we're not heard or our voices aren't heard um, does come from the bottom. Um, but, you know, again, one of the things I argue in the book is that much of that disillusion has also been packaged and formed and sold by elites. So by, I mean, right-wing intellectuals or far-right intellectuals or makers of memes or presenters on Fox News or um, people who've thought long and hard about how to package and sell and promote that sense of alienation or that sense of fear, um, how to make people angrier um, and how to make people more discontent and how to prepare people, therefore, for more radicalism. Um, and then, of course, there's a feedback loop whereby the efforts of the elites creates more alienation on the ground, and then the alienation on the ground feeds the demand for the fear and anger um, that you see on Fox News. Um, I, I don't think you can you can point to one another. I think they feed into one another, um, and, and both are important. What is the, the status of democracy in the United States? How endangered is it? So I, I do believe it is deeply endangered. Um, I believe we are at a critical moment. I think there are um, more and more people in power who are trying to figure out how to use the organs of the state, you know, to preserve power or to to um, and the you know the the, the way to say, you know these are you know the, the 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 language that's being used and the. The divisive tactics are very difficult to stop. You know, we've seen a number of other, in a number of other countries, anti-populist or um, uh, movements have often not succeeded because the the appeal of a message of unity or a message of niceness or a message of let's all be together, let's not be divided. Sometimes the appeal of that kind of message is just less powerful than the appeal of fear and anger and hatred and division. We are lucky in the United States that we're such a big country and we're such a decentralized country. Um, we don't have an interior ministry, although we saw we had the little glitterings of what one might look like when we saw the um, this sort of strange camouflage wearing troops sent to Portland. Um, we don't have an interior ministry. We don't have, you know, we're not a centralized state. Um, Washington doesn't control the police in every state. It doesn't control the voting systems in every state. 
It doesn't control the media in every state the way in some much smaller countries, you know, Hungary, something like 95% of the media is now one way or another controlled by, by the government. And we, you know, we have in that sense, our size and our, and our, and our great variety are, are a kind of bulwark against, against authoritarianism as are our courts, you know, our, um, and, and the division of power. Um, but it is a, it's a dangerous moment. I don't think democracy in America is over. I think in a lot of ways it's very lively. Um, but it's proved to be weaker in some ways than we thought it was. Besides voting, what is the most important thing individuals can do to prevent, stop those intent on authoritarianism from winning the day? I think the most important thing to do is to join civic organizations. If you don't want to join a political party or you don't want to work for a political party, then work for or join or help a get out the vote campaign or even participate somehow in your local or neighborhood politics. Um, I think being part of public conversation, being on the school board or being in the PTA or being um, in, in some way a participant in things that we all design jointly is really the best way to contribute. And you can have as much influence, as much impact at a very narrow local level as you can at the national level. Do you feel like the, actually the participation that so many people have on, on places like Twitter and, and Facebook and other social media, is it helpful or, or hurtful or both? Uh, because it just seems like uh, the more the public gets involved, uh, and, and the less the gatekeepers matter, the more vitriolic the debate has become in many ways. So I think social media is a kind of substitution for real participation. It's not real. You know, by clicking something or by talking to people online, you aren't actually participating. Being part of, you know, real groups that do things offline um, is also really important. And making sure that you have sources of information and sources of connection to people that aren't just via random Facebook or Twitter connections is, is extremely important. Having, being, you know, putting time into real organizations and real institutions, that's, I think, how democracy is built, um, rather than by scrolling through things on your phone, tempting, though that, of course, is for all of us to do. Well, on that note, uh, thanks to uh, Ann Applebaum for joining me in this discussion. Uh, I wish you the best of luck with your new book, Twilight of Democracy, The Seductive Lore of Authoritarianism. I hope that everybody listening today goes out and buys the book. It's not very costly, and it doesn't take a long time to read, and I think it, it really rewards a, a, a close read. Thank you to uh, Larry Norton and all the folks at the uh, Brennan Center for Justice, NYU's Badamist Center, NYU Votes, who produced this program. I'm Max Boot. Thank you for joining us. You're listening to Housey Production Gospel. You're listening to Housey Production Gospel. More coming your way on voter suppression here in the United States. After the 2020 election, the GOP has decided that you at the poll is not important. Less of you at the poll, poll voting is important. Will give a victory to the GOP. Black and brown folks, too many of them voting in this country. Stay with us as we talk about the powerful SB202 by the Georgia legislature. They have some 25 or 30 uh, voting things on the table, and they have put one in the law, which is SB202. More coming away. Stay with us. We hope that uh, you have enjoyed uh, this portion of the House of Gospel Clock Talk Radio. 
dealing with uh, George's bill SB202 and um, restricting voter uh, rights to the poll and uh, elements in there that uh, will change the way you vote. But here's the thing about that. You get yourself registered, be prepared to vote. If you had to take a chair, take a chair. If you got to take water, take water. If you got to take food, take food. Take whatever it takes for you to go vote. Do not let anybody stop you from voting. Go out and exercise your right to vote. We thank you for listening to House and Gospel Blog Talk Radio. We'll talk to you next time. We've got a program coming up um, here lately. Next, uh, well, this Friday, this weekend. Uh, Dee and Miss Edna Gouch, uh, she uh, has uh, served some time in prison, but uh, she's out and doing well. And she has a story to tell in regard of her life as a lesbian and how it has changed her life and all things like that. It's a powerful story. It'll be on tomorrow night, uh, tomorrow afternoon, Saturday afternoon at 1 o'clock. We hope you'll be a part of that. On behalf of all of us here at House Healing Gospel Blog, Tom Radio, make sure you tune in um, uh, Friday night. Uh, that's tonight, 8 p.m., for a powerful story on voting rights and voting restriction. On behalf of all of you, it's House of Gospel Blog Talk Radio, located at 231 6th Avenue. Take care and God bless. We'll talk to you next time. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.